talking tonight about the term Christian, a label that we wear, and we human beings love to label things. Those who work in marketing realize that, of course, and so they use that to their advantage. Uh, my Timex keeps perfectly good time as far as I'm concerned, but you would be hard-pressed to find someone who would choose it over a Rolex if we just offered those things freely your decision. Uh, for other things like that, a Ford. A Ford will get you from point A to point B just as well as a, a Lexus will, but most people are going to choose the Lexus. Or you could walk into Payless and buy some shoes, or at least you could. It just went belly up here just a few weeks ago. But you could have walked into Payless and buy some shoes, and yet most people, given the choice, are probably going to take some Allen Edmonds or something like that. Now, often, that's because a brand label is shorthand for quality. And when we think of it that way, it's not an unreasonable stance as long as we don't get too caught up in those things. It's more insidious when we start to apply labels to people. And yet, we do that too. We label people just like we do things. You might want to be smart. That might be a label that you cultivate. But on the other hand, if people start to think of you instead of smart as nerdy or geeky, well, that's probably a label that you don't like so much. Being called macho, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how you take it or depending on what's meant by that. Most of us would probably enjoy being labeled as nice. But on the other hand, we don't want to be thought of as nice to the point that people label us as soft or as a pushover. And of course, we label groups and ideas and concepts just the way that we do individuals. It's easy in English. You just attach a suffix onto the end of a name and you've got a label for a group. You can see that with political parties. Those who claim to value the ideas, ideals of a republic are labeled as republicans. Those who claim to adhere to the ideals of democracy label themselves as democrats. And it happens in religion. If you follow the teachings of Martin Luther, you're a Lutheran. If you admire the methodical way that John Wesley laid out for Bible study, then you're a Methodist, and so on and so forth. The idea of labeling and even of creating a name for a group just by attaching a suffix onto the end of a name is something that doesn't just occur in our own society. It has roots in the ancient world. And that's where the name Christian comes from. The Greek term is Christianos, and that actually comes from a, a Latin suffix that iani, that's something that you would attach onto the end of a word to show ownership or adherence or belonging to someone or to something. So this literally means Christ people or the party of Christ or as uh, the scholar John Eliot has translated this, Christ lackeys, because it's not necessarily meant as a compliment. Those people who are always around, running around talking about Christ, and they're devoted to this Christ fellow. And that clues us into an interesting point. It seems that this was a label applied to the early Christians by outsiders. 
it wasn't a self-designation originally. It's not a term that they applied to themselves. You go read through the book of Acts, or you read through the letters, and you'll see other terms much more frequently used than Christian. If those of you who are here on Wednesday night, you think back through our Acts class, what are some of the terms we saw frequently? Things like believers or disciples. Uh, Luke refers to the group collectively as the way frequently. Paul, if you look at his letters, he prefers the term saints or holy ones. He uses that a lot. In fact, we find the term Christian only three times in Scripture. That might surprise you, only three times. And every one of those occurrences seems to be associated to a certain extent with outsiders, with those uh, who are not part of the church. So in our text that was read a few moments ago in Acts chapter 11, it says the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The implication is that those residents of Antioch applied that designation to them. The only other time we find the term Christian in Acts, it's actually on the lips of a non-believer. King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 in verse number 28. Paul is making his defense before Agrippa and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa responds, as we think of it from the King James Version, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But probably more accurately, this is a sort of mocking or scoffing reply. <laughs> You would try to have me pretend to be a Christian, or you would have me play or act the Christian. That's the term Agrippa knows to apply to these people, Christian. And it's clear from the way he uses it, it's not a term that he considers complimentary. The final time is in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 16. And Peter speaks here of suffering as a Christian. And he says, if anyone does that, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. When we think about that idea of this third usage, suffering as a Christian, glorifying God on account of that name, Peter says, I think it's important for us to understand something of the historical background here, the type of thing that we normally don't think about or, or talk about, and I think this is a good opportunity for it, to understand the historical background of that suffering, what it means to suffer on account of the name Christian, why that name is important, and what that means for us. That is, why is this not something that's merely of historical significance, but why does this name Christian, that suffering that the early church went through on account of it, what does it have to teach us? The first official recognition of Christians for the first few decades of the church, it was thought of by the Roman government as just a sect within Judaism. You can see that even within the book of Acts. The Roman government tends to treat this as just an internal dispute. Gallio in Acts chapter 18, this is just a matter of your names and laws. You Jews see to this. The first time that we have the Roman government officially recognizing Christians as a distinct group and the first persecution comes under the emperor Nero. Now, Nero became emperor in the year 54, and by all accounts, he was a pretty decent emperor at first. He had a reputation for, for moderation, for justice. He was reasonable. He was popular. But over time, he became increasingly 
eccentric. Stories about his madness started to circulate, and by the year 64, he was almost universally despised, and there were these unflattering rumors about him that ran rampant. Well, that was the state of things politically when a fire broke out in the city of Rome on the night of June 18, 64. Now, Nero was evidently miles away in the city of Antium, and when he heard about it, he hustled back to Rome just as soon as he could get there, and he actually organized the fight against the fire. He tried to save it to the best that he could. And yet, in spite of that, because of his unpopularity and because this reputation he had for insanity, uh, he became a popular target of blame for setting the fire. We've probably all heard those stories attributing the cause of the fire to Nero. For six days and seven nights, the fire burned, and it even flared up a few times after that. Uh, Ten of the 14 sections of Rome were either completely or partially destroyed. And in the midst of that sort of suffering, you can imagine people were clamoring for justice. They wanted someone to be held accountable for that fire that had absolutely devastated the city. And the rumor started to spread that Nero had set the fire himself at his own whim. He wanted to burn things out uh, a variety of reasons were given for this. It probably didn't help things that not too long after the fire, he started to build a big fancy golden palace on land that had been cleared. The Roman historian Tacitus records a lot of these rumors, even though he doesn't give any credence to them. He says Nero didn't set it. It started accidentally with oil igniting in a warehouse. But more and more people suspected the emperor and these rumors spread. One of them was that he had been on top of a tower on the Palatine Hill and that he'd been playing his lyre there and watching the fire and singing a song about the burning of Troy. Another rumor spread that uh, he had said it so that he could be inspired to write an epic poem. So there are all these stories circulating. The popular masses are wanting to blame the emperor for this and it becomes clear pretty soon he needs a scapegoat. He needs someone to shift the blame onto, just like any good politician would do. Two of the groups whose populations largely were untouched in the fire, who lived in those sections that weren't burned, Jews and Christians. And so Nero settled on Christians as a convenient scapegoat to shift the blame. Now, Tacitus doesn't give very much credence to that. He doesn't think the Christians were responsible. In fact, he's pretty critical of Nero. He says that the Christians were killed not for the common good, but because of, quote, the cruelty of one man. And if you read his account, it's pretty grisly, the things that Christians were subjected to. Some of them were sewn up in animal skins so they could be hunted by dogs. Some of them were crucified. We know all about that. Some of them were soaked in oil and used as human torches in Nero's garden while he rode around the garden in a chariot. Peter and Paul were probably killed in Rome about this time. By tradition, Paul first and Peter a little bit later. But this was so over the top and the excess was so great that it started to actually arouse some sympathy in Rome, the Romans started to feel sorry for the Christians because of what was happening to them. And yet, even though Tacitus writes about that, his words also reveal the hostility that pagan Romans felt toward Christians. In other words, they might not have been deserving that, but they were deserving of punishment. 
In the Roman mind, Christians were not good people. Christianity was, quote, a deadly superstition. According to Tacitus, Christians were guilty of, quote, hatred of the human race. So that made them easy targets. People already didn't like Christians. But when we hear things like that, (laughs) hatred of the human race, a deadly superstition, that doesn't sound at all like what we think of with Christianity. So why all this animosity? You talk about labeling groups of people, labeling the other. People have a natural tendency to believe the worst about groups that are aloof, groups that are somewhat secretive, groups that are foreign, that they don't know anything about. The main cause of hatred for Romans, of the early Christians, was because of their lifestyle that was so different. Tertullian writes later in the third century in his Apology, he's a Christian writer, he says, we have the reputation of living aloof from the crowds. And just here, that word that I mentioned Paul uses frequently to describe Christians, it's one we looked at in our one-word study several weeks ago. It's instructive. Hagios, that is, the holy ones, the saints. And remember that idea of being holy is being set apart, being separated, being different, being distinct. Christians were a people fundamentally different from the rest of the world. They lived lifestyles of distinction, distinguishment among the pagans. Their very lives were a living condemnation of the things that pagans believed in and the practices they engaged in, and people always view that sort of nonconformity with suspicion. Christians rejected the pagan gods. To them, they were nothing. They weren't real. They didn't exist. But every pagan meal began with a liquid offering, a drink offering to a god. It began with a a prayer to a pagan god. Well, Christians couldn't share in that. Most social feast occurred in some pagan temple. That was the community gathering place. You would go there for a banquet. The invitation would be made to dine at the table of some god. That's why Paul talks about the Lord's table versus the table of demons in 1 Corinthians. But Christians couldn't go to such feast and commune with a pagan god and with the adherents of those pagan religions. So they seemed rude. They seemed boorish. They seemed discourteous. Here they are, these Christians. Who do they think they are? They won't even engage in society with the rest of us. Gladiatorial contests were inhumane to Christians. They couldn't support them. And yet, prisoners of war across the empire, slaves, these were forced to fight in the arena to the death. Christians even had a difficulty making a living because of rampant idolatry. A mason might be involved in building a pagan temple. He couldn't do that. A tailor might be involved in making garments for a pagan priest. They wouldn't get involved in that. Tertullian, I mentioned him already a couple of centuries later, he even writes against Christians being school teachers because they had to use texts that glorified and talked about the pagan gods. You couldn't even get into medicine because all of the hospitals were devoted to the pagan gods. 
In short, you put all this together and Christians were outside of the normal social, cultural, economic life. That meant that their faith, their life, were constantly on display. This was visible. The gospel introduced this new and revolutionary way of life for all of the pagan world to see, and they didn't like that. And so it's because of that visible difference that Christians were often the objects of slander. Peter writes about this. I mentioned suffering as a Christian in 1 Peter 4. But if you go back to chapter 2, he begins talking about that in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The idea of being sojourners and exiles is remembering that uh, your real allegiance isn't to this world. Like we sing sometimes, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You just keep at it, live in this visible way, and he goes on to spell out what all that entails. But they're going to say bad things about you because of the way that you live. There were a number of these charges, these slanderous accusations that went around about Christians in the ancient world. One was of atheism. That probably surprises us. But in the ancient world, atheism was practical. It wasn't theoretical. An atheist was one who didn't observe the traditional religion. And so Christians, of course, protested, well, no, they're not atheists. We believe in God. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that didn't satisfy the pagan objections because they didn't perform the customary ceremonies. They acted like atheists. They wouldn't go and worship just everybody's God the way that anyone else would. They were accused of cannibalism, probably because outsiders heard about the Lord's Supper, eating the body, drinking the blood. They took that literally. They were accused of incest, probably because they heard Christians referring to everyone else as brother and his sister, even husband and wife referring to each other that way. And they heard them talk about their love feast and misunderstood what it was all about. They were accused of sexual immorality, probably because they didn't distinguish from these libertine Gnostic groups in the second century who claimed to be Christians and would just do whatever they wanted to do, and Orthodox Christians. Those charges and other charges like that were able to stick because Christians were different, because of their aloofness, because they lived somewhat separated from the rest of society. But of course, they remained that way because society was so permeated with idolatry. They didn't try to, to integrate themselves and defend themselves against those charges. The main cause of Christian persecution by the Romans came about because of emperor worship. It's unclear how seriously the Romans took emperor worship in terms of thinking of the living emperor as a literal god. But this was important as a unifying force. That is, if you're a person living in the Roman Empire, you're just going to worship the emperor. The same way that we might stand for the Pledge of Allegiance or for the National Anthem. It was somewhat analogous to that. And if you refused to worship the emperor, you were suspicious. You were probably disloyal. You might be guilty of sedition. You can look at Roman coins 
and see the way that Caesar is referred to and the language that's applied to him is striking when you think about it compared to the praise that's offered to Christ. Hail, Lord of the earth, invincible power, glory, honor, blessed, great, worthy art thou to inherit the kingdom. I don't know how they fit all that on an ancient coin, but they did some way. Caesar was hailed as Lord, as Savior, as Son of God. How could a Christian compromise with that? How could a Christian hail Caesar as Lord when we confess Jesus is Lord? On the other hand, from the Roman point of view, this was stubborn, this was obstinate, which those are great crimes to the Roman mind. You need to just go along to get along. And worst of all, this might be disloyal. And that helps us understand, to get back to this idea of suffering as a Christian, suffering on account of the name, this clues us in to what was the legal basis, the legal justification of Roman persecution. Now remember this, think about this historically. Christianity got off on the wrong foot as far as the Romans were concerned because they worship a man as a god who was crucified by a Roman governor on account of setting himself up, ostensibly, as a kingly pretender. That is, he claims to be king instead of Caesar. Now, of course, the Gospels pre present that in a different light. But that's the Roman point of view. A Roman governor condemned him to death for sedition. And then beyond that, they couldn't engage in these acts of political loyalty. They couldn't go and sacrifice to the emperor the way everyone else could. And then you factor in what we read about in Acts, pretty much everywhere these guys went, there's civil unrest, there's riots. It seems like they're a bunch of troublemakers. We have an exchange of letters written between the Roman governor of the province of Bithynia in modern-day Turkey, a fellow named Pliny the Younger, and the emperor Trajan in the year 112 that's instructive here. Uh, Pliny was governor and some Christians had been accused before him and he knew being a Christian was a bad thing. But on the other hand, he'd never been present at the trial of Christians. He didn't know exactly what they were supposedly guilty of and so he wrote to the emperor seeking some guidance. He found three classes of people that charges were brought against. One, those who were accused as Christians and admitted to it, and they remained steadfast. That is, he tried to get them to recant, and they wouldn't do it. He executed those people, unless they were Roman citizens, in which case he extradited them to Rome. And as he even says in the letter, I kid you not, he felt like even if they weren't guilty of anything else, just because they were so obstinate as to disobey a Roman governor, that was reason enough to execute them. A second class of people were those who denied ever having been Christians. That is, they were accused, and they said, no, I'm not a Christian, and I never have been. He released those people because he put them to a test. They prayed to the pagan gods. They made an offering of, before the emperor's shrine, before his statue, and he had learned that true Christians couldn't be forced to do that, so they obviously weren't guilty. But there was a third class of people that really caused his questioning, those who had been Christians but who had apostatized, uh, in some cases even decades earlier. That is, they'd fallen away. They'd renounced Christianity. They proved it, that they'd renounced it, by sacrificing to the emperor and by cursing Christ. 
But Pliny wasn't sure how to proceed. He had questions for the emperor. So he asked three questions. Should we make any distinction on account of age or any other infirmity in terms of punishment of these people? Secondly, for those apostates, are they to be pardoned? And that really gets to his third question. Does the punishment for Christians attach to the name itself, that is, just for being a Christian, or are there crimes related to being a Christian they need to be held accountable for? You see, if it attached only to the name, anyone who had been a Christian but now wasn't, they could be pardoned. You could let them go. But if, on the other hand, there were crimes associated with being a Christian, well, then the inquiry had to go further. You had to find out if they were guilty of those or not. Faithful Christians, of course, wanted it to be for crimes because they hadn't committed any crimes against Roman law. They were innocent. Those who'd apostatized wanted it to be for the name only because they weren't Christians anymore and they'd be allowed to go free. Well, the Emperor Trajan wrote back to Pliny, he approved of all of his procedures here, and he answered his questions. He said, for one thing, Christians aren't to be sought out. Don't go hunting them down. But if they're accused and if they're found guilty, then they need to be punished. That might sound contradictory. That's not the way we'd go about doing things, but that was the normal way Romans handled their Jewish jurisprudence. He also said that no anonymous accusations would be accepted. So if I accused you of being a Christian and I didn't sign my name to that, we weren't going to take that because we didn't want any sort of uh, just complete anarchy to break out here. But the big thing he said was that those who denied Christ, those who denied they were Christians, were not to be punished. So in other words, the crime was attached to the name. It was illegal under Roman law to simply wear the name Christian. And that's why you suffered on account of the name, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 here. Tertullian puts it this way. Public hatred asks but one thing, not the investigation of the crimes charged, but simply the confession of the Christian name. That was the legal situation that Christians lived under from the time of Nero all the way down to the Emperor Decius in the middle of the third century. And I tell you all that tonight, not just because I think it's helpful for our understanding of the New Testament, although I do think these sorts of things are good for us to know from time to time. But I think there are three points I just want to note briefly for us to take home from this historical examination. For one thing, being a Christian is our most important label. It relativizes any other label that we have. You think about those early Christians I mentioned and how they couldn't engage in their occupation, whether they were a, a mason or whether they were a tailor or whatever, on occasion because of being a Christian. It relativizes family ties. It relativizes even your loyalty to the government, as we saw with emperor worship. Everything else is secondary. Wearing the name Christian matters more than anything else. It's of fundamental importance to us. Secondly, being a Christian is visible. People should know it about you. I mean, after all, the way that 
those, when we read about them here in the first century, in the New Testament, the way that outsiders were able to label them and the way they were able to slander them is because they saw them living this visibly countercultural lifestyle. People should see that in us. They should see that there's something different about being a Christian. And if they don't see that, if we live just like the rest of the world, well, then maybe that calls into question whether we're wearing the name as we ought. You know, in the first century, it costs something to call yourself a Christian. First century, second century, third century. You didn't wear that name unless you were committed because you were going to suffer on account of it. Nowadays, at least up until maybe the last 20 or 30 years, the situation is almost reversed. People will call themselves Christians even if they're not just so they can get along in society because it's convenient. They might not believe it. They might not ever even darken the doors of the church, but they'll say, oh, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus because it's what's socially acceptable. That's not the way that it is here. People should see that there's something different about us as Christians. We need to live that Christian lifestyle and not just adopt it as a matter of convenience. Third and finally... Christians talk about Christ. Now, that may seem obvious, but I want you to consider how did they get that name, the party of Christ or Christ people? Well, people could see, outsiders could see this was a different group. They live differently. There's something unusual about these people. They're not like us. What do we call them? How do we label them? Well, they're always going around talking about that Christ. They must belong to him. Christians talk about Christ more than anything else. And it raises the question for us when we talk about other allegiances or other uh, labels that we wear being relativized, what do you talk about most? Do we talk about, do we label ourselves most in terms of our politics, in terms of our country, in terms of our family, in terms of our hobbies? All of those things may be important in their own sphere. But if other people look at you and they identify you as someone who's proud to be an American or someone who's a Republican or a Democrat or someone who's a, a golfer or likes working in the yard or gardening or whatever it may be, before they identify you as a Christian, that's a problem. We need to talk about Christ because that shows what we talk about, shows what's important to us. The question you need to ask yourselves tonight as we dismiss is, do you wear that name Christian proudly? Does Christ hold that first place in your life? If not, and if you need to make changes in your life this evening to elevate him to that rightful place, you have the opportunity to make those changes now while we stand and while we sing. There's a fountain free, tis for you and me. Let us haste, oh haste to 